Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We have two readings today, the first coming out of Psalms 16, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now we turn to Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. A little context here, we have Luke writing about when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his death, burial, and resurrection, just after he appeared to two of them on the road to Emmaus. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your Son to fulfill what is written in the scriptures. We lift up Pastor Pat and his message today. We thank you for this family of families and for the Christocentric teaching that consistently reminds us that the Bible tells a single story, and as the reading shows us today, the center of that story is Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeff. Please be seated. We are launching our various ministry platforms. There are multiple studies that are taking place across the board. The Gospel of Matthew, the life and times of Jesus at nine. We have the prophets for the adults as well. Our children are studying the major and minor prophets. We have Esther post-exilic, or actually during the exile, uh, but post-exilic on Thursday nights. And we believe that all these various parts teach a single story, and at the center of that story is our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does any of this matter, however? We look at these overarching themes that the scriptures teach, and we have to ask ourselves, what does that have to do with me? Why does this matter to us as a community of faith and to me as an individual within this believing community. And it's something that I wrestle with all the time as I come to the text of Scripture, as I think of my own life and your life. I am confronted by the life relevancy of this text or the Bible as a whole, which we are looking at. So what, in a sense, that the Bible does indeed teach a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with me? When I consider my own life and the life of this fellowship, I recognize that the needs around us are indeed oppressive. And how does the idea of a single story, a unified story, help me in my life? 
my vocation, my relationships? Well, first of all, all of us live in a very tangible world. I am confronted by problems every day that require solutions. And it doesn't matter the problem, we're always wanting a solution. Now, some of those bigger problems are in the context of relationships. Some are concerning our vocation. Some are just the story of our lives as a whole. Uh, I, I just had some slabs of concrete mudjacked at my house. It's a relatively easy process. I don't do it. You hire out. You drill a hole in the concrete. You then pour a concrete slur into the concrete, and it lifts that slab up to level, right? So far, so good. But while those individuals were jacking up the concrete with this concrete slur, and there's a lot of pressure that's involved, right? Well, it's the slab directly in front of my porch leading into my house. The tube either bursts or comes out of the concrete. So from one end of my house to the other, I had concrete slur on all the windows and all the siding. Now, they were kind enough to hose it off. But when I got home then, I had to spend an hour with a brush and soapy water washing my house and cleaning all my windows. I'm not telling you that as a sob story. But when you have something done, you want it done, don't you? You don't want to then have to go back and follow up and clean it up yourself. And, and, but that is life, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you do or how you do it. You're like, come on, really? <laughs> but I, I, I might ask myself the question, well, how does one story, a single story with Jesus at the center, resolve concrete slur all over the front of my house? Well, what it does help is my attitude towards these individuals and the task of rubbing off the concrete that's splattered on the front of our house. But we want answers to these problems. We want solutions to this tangible world in which we live. And we come to the scripture believing that somehow, in some way, the storyline does address these things. Secondly, God, in the Bible, has spoken in such a way as to be understood. The Bible is not a code that you have to decipher. God is speaking for us in clear English, in plain English. And he's telling a story, and it's for us to understand the story, recognizing that that story dominates all of life and our individual stories, as they are, fit into that story. Now, what you want to do is believe that that's true, amen? You want to believe that somehow you in your life, in all of its complexity, you want to believe that somehow it's a part of a much greater, grander narrative. And I'm here to tell you that it is. Now, I don't always understand the ebb and flow of life or the story, but I understand where all this is heading. And every person in the Old Testament that read the biblical text understood that there was a bigger picture coming and they lived in hope. And they wanted to believe that the culmination of that story would happen in their lifetime. Right? We want to believe that as well. But you and I might die in hope. The fullest expression of that story completed, we might not experience in our lifetime. Now, when I was 20, I was thinking, well, Jesus is surely going to come back before I die. And here I am, and he still waits. We are inside that story, and our stories, our individual stories, fit inside that. But God spoke in such a way as to be understood. And he does not desire to be misrepresented or misunderstood. Every time we come to the text or we hear teaching, there's a strong potential that that teaching is going to spin and misrepresent that message on a daily basis. 
And yet there's a primary idea that the Bible is telling, and you and I as people and life fit into that story. And then finally, if what God has said is true, and we do believe, folks, not just as a fellowship, as a church, that this is the Word of God, but we believe on an individual basis that from Genesis to Revelation, there is a single story being told, and at the center of that is Jesus, and that somehow you and I fit inside that story. We believe that, not just individually, but as a fellowship. And we believe that somehow that story is being told in such a way that we can indeed understand it. But we come to the scriptures and we ask ourselves the simple question, if what God has said is true, and indeed it is, how does it change my circumstances in problem resolution? How does it answer the question of having concrete slurs splattered all over my house? Does believing that truth automatically wash it away? No, not at all. But it does help me in how I approach resolving that issue on a horizontal level. This is what the short study does for us. It places the whole thing in context. And that's what I'm wanting us to do. No matter where we are or what we do, the Bible is somehow addressing us in that situation. But I'm going to step back and give you the biggest possible picture of scripture and then as you live it out on a daily basis i'm hoping that that big picture will help you make sense of your life but when i you and i come to the scripture we know that god is teaching a story he's telling us something and whatever he's telling us is good news that good news is called the gospel we typically define the gospel as the death burial and resurrection we appropriate the gospel when we say we can't but god can and Jesus did. That did is that death, burial, and resurrection. What I'm going to do for us this morning, hopefully, is just add the various layers of Scripture in our study so you can see how it all develops. But this is the first layer. I'll place it here because there's layers to the Scripture, and I'm wanting you to see how they all tie together. It won't happen in 30 minutes or less, but it will happen. We begin with this idea of the death, burial, and resurrection. When you and I read our Bibles from Genesis to Malachi, we know that we're in a state of preparation. God is preparing the soil. He is planting the seed. That seed is going to germinate. That seed is going to produce fruit. But in the Old Testament, it is one of preparation. So when I go from Genesis to Malachi, I need to understand the entire storyline of Scripture. And right now, for us, that seems daunting. It seems too big, too large. But I believe we can understand it. And by understanding it, we have the structure or the foundation on which this house or building is going to be built. But you can then come to the Gospels. And what are the Gospels but a fulfillment or presentation of the one that the Old Testament was preparing us for? When Jesus arrived on the scene, by way of example, the wise men come to Herod and they ask the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That made Herod nervous. Herod then consult his scribal professionals. They went to the scripture and they said, right here in Bethlehem of Judea. That gospel narrative is a presentation of the Old Testament preparation. And then you have the letters and we... Uh, Canonically, you have the four Gospels of the book of Acts, which is historical, and then the book of Romans. Beginning with Romans, you have these 23 letters. The letters are an expansion or explanation of what just happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ in that death, burial, and resurrection. But the death, burial, and resurrection is the, 
the tip of the spear. Everything is coming to that point in the story. This is what's happening. And that's why you and I, as a fellowship, and you keep hearing it over and over again, and you can finish the sentence. But with these 66 books, we're reading a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus Christ. That's what we are walking away with. That's what we believe to be the truth. So the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, it's not as if it's a random, unintentional writing. The entire Old Testament is preparing us for the presentation that takes place in the four Gospels, and then the explanation of that presentation in the 23 letters that follow. That, that's really the storyline as far as it, it, part of the, the superstructure on which this building is going to be built. And, and why indeed does it matter? Well, I'm wanting us, and, and it's true, if you look at your watch, I don't even know if we use watches anymore. Uh, some of us do. Uh, if you look at your, your phone, okay, your phone's going to tell you time. It's going to show you time. It shows you time. You look at that thing, and that thing does what it's supposed to do, tell you the time. But what's behind the telling of that time? There's massive, and again, I, I don't know what's actually inside of a phone. <laughs> I can just walk or work off of a, a gear box inside of a watch. But it's absolutely incredible when you take the face off and you see what's behind the scenes. Uh, for example, when you woke up this morning, you probably flipped a switch. That switch is somehow connected to a breaker in a box. I have no idea as far as the electrical flow inside of my house. None. I just know that when I turn on a switch, it's supposed to, you expecting the lights to go off. It's supposed to do something. I appreciate that it works, but I have no idea how it works. The same is true with reference to the plumbing in your house. And we have people that actually could explain to you how all this works. I have a drain in my sink. Uh, This isn't that drain. (laughs) But I have a drain in my sink. I have really no idea how it works. I just know that one, it can't be clogged, and two, I want it to go down. But there's a whole processor system behind all of it. And when you really think about the plumbing in your house or the electrical lines within your house, it's absolutely amazing that it actually works. The same is true with reference to telling time or the scripture itself. It's amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing. And when you begin to see it, it's like blood in the water for a bunch of sharks. When you begin to see the structure, the intentional structure, and again, I'm not talking about hocus pocus. I'm talking about what is apparent and obvious once you begin looking at it as a whole. When you see it, you realize that there's this marvel behind all of it. There's all these moving parts, but all the moving parts actually work together to bring us to this point in time. It's just not randomly put together. It's telling us something. So you have this story, this massive story with all these moving parts, and that story is telling us something. So what is it telling us? Second layer. There's a second layer to all of this, and when we begin to expand it, so we have now two layers, right? We know that the Bible is telling a unified or single story, and at the center of it is Jesus. But what actually is it saying? Well, what it's saying is that God has created you and me so that we might know and experience the joy that we have within ourselves. The one symbol on my right, your left, or wherever you're sitting, is the God symbol. Then you have the creation of Adam and Eve. Then you have creation as a whole. But when you look at this, what exactly is taking place? Well, what's happening is simply this. God created you and me. He created us 
so that we would know and experience the joy that he has within himself. Before he created you, before he created us, before he created all this, there was simply God. God existed in Trinity. And God had perfect unity and harmony and joy within himself. God decided at some time in eternity past, I'm going to create icons or image bearers who can know and experience the joy that we have within ourselves. And that joy is only known in my presence. So he creates a context where that encounter can take place. Are you tracking with me? Okay. He created a context and that's the Garden of Eden. He localizes this encounter, but his intent was that Adam and Eve would till the soil until the entire globe would be one big garden. Icons, people would populate that garden. He would dwell among them and be their God and they would be his people and it would be for their joy. That's the overriding storyline of scripture. So why are you here? You're here for joy. Where will that take place? In his presence. Right now that is somewhat shadowed. It's stunted. But one day there will be this full expression of that encounter in the garden. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is in. There will be these mergings of these two realms, these two worlds. When that happens, when Jesus comes and he thoroughly straightens all that is crooked, when that happens, we will be in his presence and it will be for our joy. That's incredible. We taste and see that God is indeed good, but that is still being shadowed in this brokenness that exists on the horizontal. The means of God making everything straight or thoroughly straightening all that is crooked is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings all this to pass. God is going to make good on his promises, on his covenant or covenants. And we'll talk about all that as well. But when you think of the death, burial, resurrection, you have all this Old Testament, New Testament pressure coming. And all of a sudden, that is the death, burial, resurrection. Then you have all this aftermath, right? All the lava flow. Well, what is that? That's the expansion of church, of kingdom, of heaven coming on earth. That's what's happening. We're in a phase of that right now. That's what's taking place. Let's add another layer. So I've just talked in the broadest sweeping pictures possible. But now we come to a Luke 24. When you and I look at Luke 24, we're adding another layer of the storyline. In Luke chapter 24, and Jeff did a great job of painting the backstory. He's on the road to Emmaus. He just said the same thing that he's now saying to them in the upper room. And he says to them in the text that was read... Everything written about me in the Old Testament, that's not how they referred to it, but in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets, and I'll talk about this in just a second, the Nevim, and then the scripture or writings, the Kethuvim, the three categories of how a Jew would catalog their canon, their Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, everything in them is talking about me And everything they said is now being fulfilled in me. So when you and I read the Old Testament text, we need to read it as Jeff prayed, Christocentrically, Christ-centered, not you and I-centered. 
because the scriptures are telling us of him. So when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, when he's in the upper room and he refers to Moses, the prophets and scripture or the writings, he has these three categories of the Tanakh. And maybe you've heard the word Tanakh, depending on the level of your exposure, but the Tanakh is simply the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings. This Torah, which is the Pentateuch, the Navim, the prophets, and then the Kethuvim, the writings. You and I don't see it that way because the Hebrew scripture begins in Genesis and ends in Second Chronicles. For you and I, we begin in Genesis and we end in Malachi. That's the Old Testament. Then you begin with Matthew and you run to Revelation. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27. It has two testaments. The word testament sort of throws us off because we're too overly familiar with it. But it's the Old Covenant and now it's a New Covenant. Where are we? New covenant. We're in a new covenant. We are no longer under the... The old covenant has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you and I, as the people of God, are in the new covenant. And we, as a whole, read the New Testament or the new covenant. That's what the Old Testament, the old covenant, prepared us for. The presentation, then the explanation. What's actually going on? Unfortunately, many people still exist under the old covenant. Testament, and yet they shouldn't. I'm going to do a real quick walkthrough. We're really doing good, by the way. Don't look at your phones. We're doing great with time, okay? And I'm convinced, folks, and again, if you can't read this, I did provide this for you in your bulletin. You can track it, and I I would really encourage you to track it, because here's what happens uh, when you begin to understand the overarching storyline of Scripture. It takes this huge thing that you really could never wrap your arms around and you begin drawing it in, you realize, okay, this thing, it's huge. It'll take an entire lifetime in all of heaven to unpack all of this. But you can actually wrap your arms around it if you understand the movement or storyline within Scripture. And this is going to go rather quickly now. But if you look at this, you look at the very top, we know that it tells a single story at the center of it is Jesus, one story, one Savior. You start over here with Genesis 1, 1 through 11, and then we're going to end in Revelation. I'm going to walk through that right now rather quickly, okay? But the book of Genesis has two broad sections, 1 through 11, 12 through 50. In the first section, 1 through 11, you have what is called primeval history prior to the patriarchs, which begin with Abraham. You have four primary events. You have creation, the fall, flood, and Babel. You have the slaying of Abel by Cain. All of that is playing out the seed promise and the blood picture, and we'll come back to that at another time. And then you begin with the patriarchs in Genesis chapter 12. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then we identify Joseph, but Jacob has 12 children who become the 12 tribes of Israel, Of the 12 tribes, one becomes the seed promise, which is Judah. And I'll talk about that in another lesson. We'll simply walk walk through the entire level or study. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Here is where you have Moses. That takes us from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. We'll talk about that when we get to the law. And then Joshua, which is the beginning of the historical books. Then you have the judges, the period of the judges. We know judges like Gideon and his fleece. We know Samson and his hair. We have people like Ruth. Ruth is during the period of the judges. Samuel the prophet. He's a prophet in the king anointer. Samuel anoints Saul, which is the beginning of this monarchy. 
you have these books then, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? You're still tracking with me? Kings and Chronicles are telling the same story from two different vantage points, prophets and priests. First and Second Samuel shows us the culmination of the storyline as it exists in the book of Ruth. But you have this united monarchy with King Saul. There's a little fudging going on, but it's a united monarchy. But Saul is of Benjamin's line. Saul is not of Judah's line. So Saul's kingship is not the final answer. After Saul, you have King David. And as a whole, these people are working in 40-year time periods. Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigns for 40 years. Solomon reigns for 40 years. Now, give or take a few years, but why would the Scripture have this idea of 40 years? Well, one is probation, and one is a mnemonic device to help us remember how long they reigned. But you have Saul. Saul's jealous of David. David is the king. Was David the perfect king? No. But David is of Judah's line. David becomes a type of the anti-type, which will be King Jesus. Jesus is of Judah's line. Jesus is of David's line. Then you have Solomon, but that's... That's the storyline. And then in First and Second Kings, in First and Second Chronicles, you have Solomon's reign, then you have Rehoboam, then you have Jeroboam. Jeroboam rebels against the kingship of Rehoboam. Jeroboam takes ten tribes and he goes north. That's where you have the ten northern tribes in about 931, 933 B.C., before the common era, before Christ. The kingdom splits. Ten are in the north. They're all bad, all bad in the north. There's no good king. It's not Judah's line. In the south, you have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. You have good kings, but that's the seed promise line. Assyria comes, takes over the 10 northern tribes in 722 BC. They cart them off into captivity. They actually disperse them. They're scattered. And that's where you begin having all these prophets. You'll notice that you have people like Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are more prophets than the five major and 12 minor that we have in our Bibles, but they're called the writing prophets. There are other prophets, they're just not writing. Not that they're illiterate, they can actually write, we just don't have their writings. But you have then the storyline being explained with these major and minor prophets, and that's what our kids and some of the adults are studying right now. Then they go into exile, the exilic is toward two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They're carted off by the Babylonians, taken to Babylon, beginning in 606, then 597, then 586. In 586, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. They're there for 70 years. In 536, they're restored to the land. And then you have what are called the post-exile or the post-exilic prophets of Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Esther, Nehemiah, and Malachi. This is all part of that time frame. But it's all pushing the story forward. It's all giving them promises. And what you see when you read Nehemiah and Malachi is that the heart of the people had not been changed by the exile. They still needed a new heart. That's the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 31. You say, well, Pastor Pat, I am absolutely, positively overwhelmed. What I'm trying to show you is that the Bible does teach a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus. The hope that the prophets were bringing to the people is that despite their rebellious and hard heart, God is still going to be faithful to his covenant. He is still going to provide a king who will rescue his people 
defeat their enemies, and restore them to the land. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. Every promise that he has made, he will fulfill. Because God is a promise-keeping God. And that promise is kept in Jesus. When you look at this entire narrative, then you have Jesus in the gospel. He is the presentation of the preparation. He's the fulfillment. Then the book of Acts shows the expansion of that kingdom or church. All the letters are explaining, and then you see this picture of culmination in the book of Revelation. So you have all these books, all these covenants that are taking place. Now, just to help you uh, get the overview of this whole thing, if you look at creation, and I'm a, uh, I, think, I think I'm an early earth. Does that mean 6,000 to 8,000? It's called early earth, early creation. I'm good? Okay. But you have creation, and then from the point of creation to Abraham, you have roughly 2,000 years. Abraham is called out of the Ur of the Chaldees in 2000 B.C. So you have creation to Abraham. Then from Abraham to Jesus, you have 2,000 years. Then from Jesus to the present, you have 2,000 years. And I'm not trying to read anything into it. I'm simply giving you a reference point for managing the biblical storyline and the canon. Creation, Genesis 1. You move to Genesis 12, 2,000 years have passed. You go from Genesis 12 to the book of Matthew, 2,000 years have passed. You go from Matthew to where we are right now, 2,000 years have passed. Let me tighten that timetable just a little bit. Abraham is 2,000. The Exodus and the giving of the law is about 1,400 B.C. So about 500 years have passed. From 1,500 or 1,400 B.C. to King David, another 500 years are going to pass. From King David in about 1,000 B.C. to 500 B.C., you have approximately 500 more years are going to pass. And then when you go from the post-exilic to Jesus, you have basically 500 years passing. So you have these time frames that you can perhaps begin hanging your clothes on to help you understand this movement or storyline. But the Bible is enabling us to understand story because God spoke in such a way as to be understood. If you're ever wanting to build a building and it's rather large, you have to stake out the corners to make sure it's square. Perhaps you've never done it. But if you think you can wing it, it ain't going to work. These chairs are straight. You know, for the most part, these aisles are straight. You know how we got them straight? It wasn't by winging it. We laid down a laser light, and that laser light guided us as to where we were supposed to put the chair. If we wung it, wung it? If we wung it, <laughs> the chairs wouldn't be straight. <laughs> but because we use a laser, it's straight. All these dates, all this movement, all this time that we have just spent looking and playing down all these layers is giving you a laser that's going to help you now add on and build off of and make it straight. But there are other things that I'm wanting us to note and see, and we'll hopefully do it as we walk through the study. We've talked often of a blood picture and a seed promise from Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21. We need to mark that. That's part of the one story. It's another layer, but it's all part of the one story, one Savior. So you have the seed promise and you have this blood picture, but in addition to that, you have these covenants. Now, the covenants, you begin, and I think there's a covenant cut, or at least pictured in the, in the beginning days of Genesis 1 and 2 with the instruction that God gives to Adam and Eve, but it's reiterated and restated to Abraham in chapter 12. 
And you, you then have the Abrahamic covenant. But those covenants, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all these covenants are contracts that God makes with his people. But they are, in a sense, one-sided. God is going to do the fulfilling of the covenant. He's going to make it pass. He will finally seal that covenant in the cross. But those are all the covenants. So when you talk about seed promise and blood picture, you talk about the covenants of God, all these covenants. They're all still telling a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus. But they're layers, and you think it's overly... No, it's not overly complicated. And we'll reduce it to its biggest, most common denominator. But then you have another layer. What's all this talk about law? How in the world does this all fit together? The law goes from Genesis 19 all the way through the book of Deuteronomy where you have a repeating of law, the second law, Deuteronomy, second law. And that law governs or guides the nation of Israel. What what in the world is going on when you talk about law? So you've got seed promise, blood picture. You've got covenants. You've got law. This is crazy stuff. One last thing and then we're done. You're like, I've heard preachers say that before. Okay? On top of this, then you have all the stories. And those are the, the stories are what we grew up on. Jonah. We grew up on David and Goliath. We grew up on, I, I can't remember which woman pounded the tent peg through the guy's temple. But you got all these great stories. <laughs> Samson killing Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. You've got all these stories. How do all the stories fit into the whole narrative? Because we fixate on the story, but the, those stories are actually telling us something. And that's where, really where we have to stop. And this is a, one of those Russian dolls. It, they, it goes by like the babushka doll. Okay? She's wearing, a, I think the scarf is the babushka, the head covering. Okay? I got some nods, so good. But you look at that thing, and you think, well, that's pretty cool. That's what you see when you open up your Bible. You think, well, that's pretty cool. Okay? But you take that thing, and what you find is another one inside. And you're like, well, this is crazy stuff. There's another one. And you think, well, there's another one inside. And you keep packing the, unpacking these things. And you're like, holy smokes, there's another one inside. And you keep packing it unpacking and there's another one inside and you finally come to the very little center of it what is this this is the genesis 1 2 narrative all the stuff that all bear the same image and picture are simply telling the same story over and over and over again. It's not as if somehow they're telling something different. They're all saying the same thing. Why? Because the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus. And when you begin that kind of thinking, it really starts making sense. So you've got all these layers, and you say, well, how in the world does this relate to me right now? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. And you say, Pastor Pat, I've opened it up and I've begun to read, but I am completely and utterly lost. Then I would say, come to one of our classes. Because every single class is saying the same thing, but from a different vantage point. Matthew, Prophets, Esther, whatever it is. Romans, it's all going to say the same thing. All we are doing is peeling back layers. But it all says the same 
thing. And we always want a quick fix. We always want something to happen overnight. Like I, t- I take my bag of popcorn, I put it in my microwave, and okay. But it doesn't necessarily happen like that. It took me quite a while to come to the point where I finally, oh, oh now I get it. I can understand its basic message, death, burial, resurrection. I can't, God can, Jesus did. But there's so many other layers and they all fit together and they tell that single story. So let me encourage you to do this. One, if you have a Bible, hold a Bible. Not in your hands right now. But if you have a Bible, hold a Bible. I mean, go home and hug your Bible. You know, Take your phone and go like, this is wonderful. Okay? This thing is an incredible book. But what's even more incredible is not just the way that it feels in your hands, but is the story that it tells. And those stories are all connected. And they all tell a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus. And that's what we do as a fellowship. We keep unpacking the storyline of the Scripture, and we try to drive it home. I heard something. My grandson was telling me that he watched some show on Netflix, and Will Smith was narrating, and he was talking about diatoms. How many of you have heard of diatoms? Diatoms? Maybe I'm saying the word wrong. Okay. Some of you. What is it called? Diatoms. Thank you. That's probably how he said it to me, but I just make up words all the time anyways. Diatoms. It's spelled diatoms, but it's diatoms. Okay. Either way, and I'll probably say diatoms, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay. But diatoms are those things that you see on your screen. And they're everywhere, but they're in like liquid. But you have the Sahara Desert in northern Africa. The diatoms in North Africa are caught up through the winds that are coming down and carried over the Atlantic into the Amazon. And they bring with them the minerals. And these diatoms feed the Amazon. Diatoms. I'm so confused now. Let's go eat. No. These diatoms. Diatoms. Now, forget it. I'm going to go home. The diatoms from the Sahara traveled all these thousands of miles into the Amazon and now feed the Amazon. Then at the same time that these are coming down, the floodwaters are coming in and washing all the other stuff out and feeding the seas. So you have this massive cycle taking place. Now they know that because the astronauts who are circling the earth are seeing it and are able to describe it. But you and I from our level can't see it. It's too small. We can feel it, but we can't see it. And we really don't appreciate what's taking place. But from above, you can see it. And when you see it, it's a thing of marvel, isn't it? Well, that's true with the Scripture. We're showing you this flyover and showing you just how incredible it actually is. Now, you benefit from it whether you participate or not. But if you actually see what's going on, it's stunning. It's stunning what's taking place. Because you have all these moving parts, but they all fit together. And they all feed you. They're feeding you. And we want you to understand the storyline because in this moment you're being fed by what God is doing on a much grander scale. And one day it will all come together. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people in this place. Use this time to encourage and nurture us in your word 
may we walk away with a greater appreciation for what's taking place in the storyline of Scripture and how it impacts us as individuals. We thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.